New Year, everybody. How are y'all doing today? You guys hear me? You guys hear me all right? Okay. Um, welcome to the first Sunday of the new year. And you guys are starting off the, day, the, the year on the right foot, worshiping God, being with your church family. Um, thank you guys for everybody who came out last Sunday and did our, our brunch. If you missed it, you missed some awesome food and some great fellowship time. Uh, we do that every, every year. The last Sunday of the year, we have, uh, we have the brunch in there. Fortunately, we, we now can set up this room as the downstairs is just too small for our growing church family. Amen? So it's wonderful to be able to see that. Uh, just a couple things if you missed the beginning. Uh, th- this Saturday, ladies, you're, you have a breakfast at 9 o'clock. Um, so definitely want you guys to be part of that. Uh, this Wednesday <clears throat> is the start of our, our Wednesday night ministry. And so youth group starts. Rowan's got, got the kids down at Tennessee Christian Teen Convention down there right now in Gatlinburg. That's where they are. I'm praying for all of them. They start up on Wednesday. Children's K through 5 will start over in the children's building Wednesday from 7 to 8.30. And we are doing a marriage series, a 10-week marriage series called um, Marriage on the Rock. It is a video series. Adults, you will meet in here uh, from 7 to 8.30. There will be food. There will be uh, uh, great stuff. We also have child care. This time, we did not have that in the fall. We have it now. So if you have children that are younger than, K, than, than kindergarten, you can still uh, participate. Child care will be back there in our nursery. And, uh, and so, you, so there's something for the entire family. So that is what will happen on Wednesday. Now, we need to know. You need to register. So like Colby said, go to our website under the registrations and register there so that we know how much food to have, how many child care people, that, you know, how many children are coming, that kind of thing, so we can, we can serve you well. But really, 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 uh, I, I believe that family ministry is so, so, so important. Our homes are not where they need to be. And I just, I just have this vision. If, if, think about if, if we had a high number of homes that had three things going for them. One, their marriages were intentional. Not perfect. Nobody's marriage is perfect. I'm talking intentional. If husbands and wives were intentional towards working on their marriage. Two, if their finances were in order. If there was no financial chaos in your home. And three, if you parented your children with, in, with intentionality. If those three things were happening in our homes, our homes would be great, our society, our entire community would be changed. And so that is the focus of the family ministry on Wednesday night. Marriage, intentional marriage, uh, financial peace, and intentional parenthood, and you see that throughout the entire year. So, so please, if you are married, if you are engaged, I highly want to invite you to Wednesday night, uh, and, and it, the, the video series is fantastic. I wish I would have had this, this stuff when I was younger. So uh, that, without further ado, let's get into <clears throat> what we're talking about today. Those of you that are visiting with us, we are going through the entire book of Luke this year. The entire year is going to be focused on the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. And we're going straight through the Gospel of Luke. We're in chapter 3 right now. And so the main thing is, returning to God's a five-step pathway. I, fe- I came across this quote, you guys, that I thought had tremendous significance. And it's amazing that it comes from the year 387 A.D. It, it was not made uh, recently, although it could have been. This is what it says. If you knew how quickly people would forget about you after your death, you will not seek in your life to please anyone but God. 
Let me say that one more time. If you knew how quickly people would forget about you after your death, you would seek in your life to please any, you would not seek to please anyone but God. And that is the backdrop for what we're talking about today. Um, the, the, and if you look at John, uh, in Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist, it begins his ministry. And, and throughout the entirety of Israel's history, God has sent prophet after prophet after prophet to call people back to God. Because just like us, they could not, for some reason, stay focused on God. They, had, they were going after this, or going after this, or rebelling here. They just had this awful track record of being faithful to God. And so God sent prophet after prophet to call them back, to call them back, to tell them to repent, to turn. And John the Baptist is in that line. If you look in Deuteronomy 30, verse 2 through 3, this is Moses speaking. 4,000 years ago, when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from the nations where he has scattered you. If you return to God, there's blessing, is what Moses was saying 4,000 years ago. And then prophet after prophet said the same thing. And then John the Baptist says the same thing here in Luke chapter 3, 1 through 3. In the 50th 50th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of of Judea, Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee, his his brother Philip Tetrarch of Eturia and Triconius and all that stuff, uh, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, John the Baptist was Jesus' relative. He may have been a cousin, distant cousin, second cousin, twice removed, whatever, but he was related to Jesus, okay? And he he went ahead of Jesus to prepare the way, all right? Of all the things that he could preach, he preached repentance. He didn't tell people to live their best, best life now. He didn't tell people to, uh, 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 to, to uh, you know, five steps to reducing anxiety. He didn't, he preached repentance. Now, 90s youth group kids, there was a man from the desert with naps in his head. The sand that he walked was also his bed. The words that he spoke made the people assume there wasn't too much left in the upper room. With skins on his back and hair on his face, they thought it was strange by the locusts he ate. See the Pharisees trip when they heard him speak till the cut, king cut the head off this Jesus freak. Right? Okay. And what's the next line of that song? What will people think when they hear that I'm a Jesus free? Absolutely. Okay, 90s youth group kids. Okay. I, 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 yeah, all, all, the, all, the, all, our, all our kids are going, oh, that is so lame. Yeah, that's okay. It was a great song, a DC talk, talking about John the Baptist. Absolutely. Okay. He, like I said, he did not tell anyone to live their best life now or to... Uh, or, to, or to just to just love everybody. He did not say that, although he could have. He didn't. His message was repentance. Okay, guys, this was what was essential before people could return to God was repentance. And if you study the Bible, the Old Testament in particular, said God sent prophet after prophet after prophet drawn back, and the people had the same allergic reaction to re- the, that message then that they do now. Okay, call people to repentance to change what they're doing and see how popular you are. Repentance is no more more popular today than it was back then. But uh, there there are churches today that instead of calling people to repentance, 
They actively encourage people in their sin. Uh, I've seen churches bringing drag queens in to speak. It happened in a church in New York. There are churches all over the place that are conducting gay wedding ceremonies, ordaining homosexual and transgender clergy. You guys, and I'm not saying that to, to, to blast or anything. I'm saying that instead of calling people to repentance, churches are now affirming people in their sin. And that is not what John the Baptist did. Okay? Jesus was not into affirmation. Listen, he was not into affirmation. He was into transformation. He loved you way too much to leave you where you are or where you, where, where you are in your sin. He wants to call you to something better, to transformation. Uh, the first step to transformation is repentance. It is a turning from sin. If you don't do that, you will never move out of your current situation, never. They say that the first step to getting out of a hole is to stop digging, right? You've heard that? The first, if you're in a hole, the first thing you gotta do is stop digging. Well, repentance is the stopping of the digging. If you find yourself $200,000 in debt, the first thing, instead of trying to pay that off, first thing you gotta do is stop spending. You gotta stop making it worse. You gotta turn off, you gotta, you, gotta, you gotta stop maxing out your credit cards each month. And with the affirmation people come along to that person that, that, that is $200,000 in debt, and they'll say, oh, it's all good, no judgment. You keep maxing out those credit cards. You keep doing that. You know, we just affirm you. We're, we're cheering you on. Yeah. Does that sound like love? It doesn't sound like love. But John the Baptist, on the other hand, told them in no uncertain terms to cut up the credit cards, to stop spending. Once you stop digging, once you cut up the cards, you're not healed and whole. You're still in a bad place, but at least you're not making it worse. See, that's what repentance is. It is the stopping of the digging. It's the stopping of the behavior that's got you where you are today. Okay, you're not making it worse. And then the Bible, once you've stopped digging, once the repentance happens, and you stop doing what you're not supposed to do, then there are five steps back to God. And John the Baptist tells us what they are. First one is this, is that we're to embrace relationship. I want everybody to hear this. Embrace relationship. Everybody say embrace relationship. Luke 3, 7 through 9. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Not the best tactic to be a public speaker. Okay, if I started off this sermon by telling you all how awful you are, calling you a bunch of bloodsuckers, a bunch of uh, cobras, serpents, you probably wouldn't like that. That's what, John the Baptist does not follow seminary's protocol for preaching. You're supposed to start with a joke or a rap to Jesus freak. You know, you're supposed to do something like that. But he, called, he says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, what the heck is he saying there? Well, remember the people he was speaking to were Jewish. And the, and the Jewish people had their cultural identity as followers of God. They were not followers of God, but that was their cultural identity. They said, hey, Abraham was our father. You know, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had father, right arm, left arm. Okay, you guys know that. Okay, all right, well, Father Abraham, they, they basically were going off of Abraham's faith. And John is saying, don't, you, you cannot do that. You cannot rely on the faith of someone that went before you if you yourself are not following God. And there are people in here today 
as wonderful as you are, as lovely as you are, who are saying the exact same thing. You don't really know Jesus. You're part of a family that knows Jesus, maybe, but you don't really know him. Um, you have what I call a ballpark faith. Everybody say ballpark faith. Ballpark faith. Let me tell you what a ballpark faith is. Right? I grew up going to Reds games with my dad and my brother. I love any Reds fans in here, Cincinnati Reds fans. Okay, these were in the days of Chris Sabo, uh, uh, Barry Larkin, those days, the 80s, the, the, the great years where they never won anything, okay? That, that we would go up there, and we even had our traditions. I, I love, we would we'd drive up there, we listen to the Good Morning Vietnam soundtrack, Okay, some Motown, some good stuff, okay? And then we would park in Covington. This, this was every, every time. This was our tradition. We'd park in Covington, and we'd buy peanuts from the same guy that was sitting there since 1880, okay? He was the same guy. All, all the, he was there. And then we'd walk across the, the, the bridge, terrified that I was going to fall in, that the bridge was going to fall. That, that was a terror thing for me. I'm still in therapy. And then we, would, then we got to the ballpark, and we would get a hot dog and a Coke, Hot dog and coat. And then in the seventh inning, we would get a frosty malt. And they were great. We'd watch the Reds lose. I'd listen to my dad call them turkeys. I, all that stuff was a tradition. It was wonderful. I loved it. I loved every second of it. Then we'd go home. A great time was had by all. But you know how many Reds baseball games I've taken my family to that I've scheduled? I bought the tickets I've, you know how many since I was a kid? Zero. I didn't have a problem with Reds baseball games. I loved Reds baseball games. But they were my dad's thing. Uh, and, and if he scheduled it, I would go and I'd enjoy it. I didn't have a problem with it. It's just I wasn't going to take the initiative to do that because I had other things that I was doing. And that's the way a lot of our faith is. We have no problem with church. We've got no problem with Jesus. As a matter of fact, we love the songs. We love the fellowship of the church. We love the stories, um, everything. And if, and if, and if your parents are going or, or whatever, you have no problem. You, 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 you have no problem with it at all. You go to church and you love it. But if mom and dad in there, you're not going. Some of you husbands, if your wife doesn't say let's go to church. You're not going. If wife is sick, you stay home too. You have no ownership of your faith because you have a ballpark faith. And that's what was going on here. That was John was calling them to embrace relationships, say they were part of a family, but they didn't know Jesus. And that is the condition of a lot of people in here. We're just like the people of John the Baptist's time in the club because of our parents. And to the people under age 18 in here, Listen to me. Listen to me. You know what the statistics are, don't you? You know what they are? About 80% of you will leave the church when you graduate high school. That's the statistic. Uh, that was a statistic that was thrown around when I was in youth ministry. It hasn't changed at all. Why? Well, a, a few of you may have a problem with Jesus. A few, not many. Not many have legitimate problems with Jesus. We really don't. Um, you may have a problem with faith in general, maybe a few, but, but not, not many, though, not most of you. The main reason most of you will leave the church isn't because you have a problem with it. It's because you don't have a relationship with Jesus. And that's the first thing that John the Baptist calls these people out on. 
and he would call us out on too. Not, are you part of a church, are you part of a Christian family? It is, do you know Jesus? Because if you don't, what, what does John the Baptist say? He says, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is at the root of the tree, he says. Now, why would he say that? The ax at the root of the tree? He's talking about your family tree. One generation is all it takes to completely be cut off. One generation of unbelief. One generation of unbelief that, that walks away from God. They raise children knowing nothing about God. And your family tree is stopped spiritually is what he's talking about. And he says this. It's not enough that you come from a Christian family. It's not enough that you were in youth group and you went to TCTC and CIY and mission trips and all that. It's not enough. The question is, do you know him? He's calling us to embrace relationship with Jesus. It doesn't matter what your family does. You need to know Jesus yourself. And parents, listen to me. If your children do not know Jesus, you have a very short window of time to do discipleship with them, to introduce them to Jesus. And parents, if you want to know if your children have a relationship with Jesus, this is something I found as a parent. Now that my children are pretty much gone from the house, um, this, is, this, is the, this is how you know if your children know Jesus. This is how you know. Not if they're fired up about church, not if they love youth group, not if they go on the trips. That's not it. This is it. Do they ask you questions about their faith? Do, when you're in the car, Driving, do they say, Mom, is it really true that I have these friends who are really good people, they're not, not, not Christians? Are they really going to hell when they die? Um, uh, you know, Mom, um, I, 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 I'm having trouble with prayer. I, I'm, I'm, I just feel like my God's not listening. Um, are they asking those kinds of questions? Not are you bringing them up, are they bringing them up? Because if they are, you can pretty well guarantee they have a relationship with Jesus. If they're not, then it's time to really be intentional. Do they ask questions? So you guys, we need to move from our family faith to a personal faith. We need to embrace relationship. And that's the first thing that John said to the people. That must have hit them like a bomb because they had always looked to Abraham, they always looked to their, their Jewish identity as, as their religion, and they were as far from God as possible. And the same thing is, is true of us and our families. If you don't know Christ, the ax is already at the root of the tree, and if you don't produce good fruit, you'll be cut down and thrown into the fire. Not a politically correct message, but truth. And that's what John is saying. To return to God, you have to embrace relationship. The second thing that he tells us is that we need to enable generosity. Say, enable generosity. Okay, Luke 3, verse 10 and 11. What should we do then, the crowd asked. That's a good question. When your whole identity has been destroyed by John the Baptist, you say, what do we do? And he says, this is what you do. John answered, verse 11, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. The second that, that you return to God is that you begin to see others. See, the problem with, our, with us is that we're very self-centered. A lot of times we only see what we have going on. We're, um, we're, we're completely blind to what's going on with others. Your time, your money, et cetera, becomes available to others in need. And we have to be wise about this because things are different in America than they were in, John, in, in Jesus' time in Israel. 
I got a call from a guy on Thursday sitting up here. Usually when the, when the phone rings, it's a telemarketer, and a lot of times I don't answer it, but I happen to answer it. And, and there's this guy that, that sounded pitiful, it sounded just pitiful. And he was cold, and he was hungry, and uh, could I get him a room for the night somewhere? And I said, no. And he said, uh, uh, I, I asked him where he was. And he said, I'm, I'm walking down Main Street near the Cottage Cafe. And I said, well, I, I, I know some people at the Cottage Cafe. So I said, well, go there and get yourself a meal and tell them to call me and I'll, I'll pay for it. And he said, thank you. Thank you so much. Well, I got a call from the Cottage Cafe. Uh, I, I, I called the Cottage Cafe, told him the deal. I said, you know, there's a young man, name is, told him the name, and, uh, and just, just call me and, and I'll, I'll, I'll pay, for, pay for his meal over the phone. Just tell me what it is and I'll, and I'll pay. All right? So she called back about 30 minutes later and said, now, were you paying just for the one man or the whole table? And I said, oh, boy. Uh, I, I, I hate to say this, but I was expecting this. I said, how many are at the table? There are four people at the table. And uh, I said, nope, I'm not paying for all four of them. I'm paying for just him because I'm not going to be taken advantage of like that. I said, the others can figure it out. See, guys, there is such a large group of people in our community that will take advantage of, of your generous spirit. I, hear, I see it all the time. I'm a pastor. I get call after call after call, the same sob story, same sob story, same sob story. And turns out this was a guy who had, was a regular at the Cottage Cafe, and I guess he just calls different churches and they pay for his meal. Um, and uh, and I, I paid for his meal because I said I would. I felt very taken advantage of. I really did. Uh, lied to. And because of things like that, you all, I get really hardened and cynical. I'm confessing that, that I, I typically have a very hard heart towards people in need now because I've been taken advantage of so many times. And, uh, and, and I get it. Like I said, I constantly battle with that. I ask God to break that, that heart, that hard-heartedness in me. And then every time he does, somebody, you, you know, takes advantage again. And, but what does John tell us here? If you have two shirts, give to someone who doesn't have one. Doesn't matter why they lost their shirt. Doesn't matter if they and anyone the food. Give some to someone who has none. And as I was studying this scripture, I realized what John had said: clothes and food, not money. Clothes and food. That is what we are to be generous with. If people need clothes, they need shelter. If people need uh, uh, food, sustenance, we provide those. We do not provide money. That is what God is calling us to be generous with. So when you see someone in need and they want money, no. That is not what John the Baptist is saying here. He's saying, if you don't have a shirt, I give you a shirt. If you need food, I'll buy you a meal. So was I taken advantage of? No. I followed what John the Baptist said. I realized that as I was studying this. Man, the man needed food, and so that was okay. So we innate, the first, the second thing, it, that, that, that after we embrace relationship, then we enable generosity. We begin to see the people around us. Who in your life needs what you have? 
needs. I'm not talking wants. I'm talking needs. Let's go do it. The third thing that, God, that, that John the Baptist says here in God's word is we need to eliminate dishonesty. Now, this is a big one for me, okay? This is a big one for me. I hope you guys listen because this is huge for me. Luke 3, 12 through 13. Even the tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. See, guys, tax collectors were agents of Rome. They were despised. They were Jewish collaborators with the Roman occupiers. And the Roman governors basically said, okay, you owe me this much, but anything else other than that, you keep for yourself. So tax collectors um, could charge whatever they wanted. They could walk into your house and they could say, well, your, your house is worth $50, but I'm going to write it down as 5000 And you owe me 500 bucks. I'm going to give 200 to Rome. And I'm going to keep 300 for myself. And the Jewish people had no recourse. They were constantly taken advantage of, constantly being stolen from by this. And, and the, John the Baptist is telling the tax collectors, don't collect anymore. Be honest. Eliminate dishonesty. Okay? The amount of dishonesty then is only rivaled by the amount of dishonesty today. Amen? One of the biggest stories this week has been out of Harvard University. I don't know if you've seen this, but Claudine Gay, who was the president of Harvard, who was a professor at Harvard before that, earning $900,000 a year, was, 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 not, was uh, selected for president of Harvard. Well, it turns out that she plagiarized her dissertation and, and multiple counts, like 20 counts of plagiarism. Taking something that is her, of, of someone else, someone else's idea, and passing it off as her own. The cardinal sin in higher education. If any of you all, even in high school, if you were to plagiarize, you would be, uh, you would be severely disciplined. You got a zero for a grade, maybe even suspended. In college, in graduate school, you are, it, it is over for you if you are a plagiarist. That's how rigorous the standards of academic honesty are. At least they were. And now the premier flagship of American education, Harvard University, has a plagiarist as president. And she resigned, but she was, she's still on the faculty. Now, I'm a big enough jerk that when I, if, when I was in college, if that, had been, if that had happened where I was in school, a lot of the professors used textbooks. You know what I probably would have done, thinking my younger self? I probably would have photocopied the professor's textbook and handed it in, signed it, and say, this is my paper and dared them to accuse me of plagiarism. See if they were self-aware enough. I probably would have done that. The point remains is that we don't have standards of honesty in our society anymore. I've seen video after video after video, usually from California, of people walking into stores with bags and just cleanings, a broad daylight, shoes, iPhones, uh, electronics, just, and just walking out, no shame, no recourse, nothing. And that is the world we live in right now. Shoplifting is such a huge problem these days. And if, and if John the Baptist were here in America, he would be calling us to eliminate that dishonesty because that is not, not where God wants us to be. They said, Shoplifting is stealing. It's so common. 
And a lot of times it's not even prosecuted anymore. Well, God is calling us, Catalyst Christian Church, America, to something better. Are you a thief? Do you take that which is not yours? God, John the Baptist is saying, stop. Here's a question for you guys. You can't return to God with blatant dishonesty in your heart. Are you a habitual liar? Are you dishonest like that? Uh, are you a habitual exaggerator? Do you put some spin on things to make them sound better so people will like you more? Are you a thief? Do you steal time from your company? Do you steal, uh, you borrow things with no intention of ever returning them? How many of you all have things in your garage that belong to your neighbors? How many of you all have things that are in your neighbor's garage that belong to you? Um, do, you, do you take things from your place of business, pens, uh, whatever, do you do that? God is calling you to eliminate that dishonesty. He's calling us to something better. All right? Return to God, America. Eliminate dishonesty. Do not take that which is not yours. Let's be better, Christians. Let's be better than what our culture is doing. Let's be academically honest. Let's pay for things that we, that we buy. Let's return things we borrow. Let's not steal time from our company embracing laziness. Okay? Right. The fourth thing, that, that fourth step back to God is this. We need to extinguish selfishness. Say extinguish selfishness. Verse 14 and 15, some so, then some soldiers asked him. So he's had the Jewish people, he's had tax collectors, he's had, now he's had soldiers, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Now Rome had occupied Israel and the soldiers were kind of like the policemen. They were like the dirty cops. Okay, of, of the day. And they could make false accusations that somebody had a nice piece of property. They could accuse them of subverting Rome and they could seize the property and the soldiers would get it. Okay, so they, a false accusation was a very lucrative thing for soldiers who were making literally nothing. So they used this false accusation and extortion to supplement their income. If you guys think that the good old days were good old days, they weren't. Okay, this was the world Jesus was, brought, was born into. Right, And there was no recourse for the people. Uh, John tells us in positions of power to stop exploiting those positions of power, stop bullying, stop abusing people who have no recourse, no defense. And he says, replace selfishness with contentment. Maybe that's a message for you guys today. Be content with what you have. If ever a message was needed for our country, that's it. See, guys, what I've found in my life is that selfishness is the root cause of all problems, all conflict. Every conflict you've ever had with somebody is rooted in selfishness. Somebody think of themselves more than you or you think of yourself more than them. Every playground fight, every world war, every hus husband and wife argument, every sibling argument boils down to selfishness. It's the cause of it all. It's the cause of all sin. Selfishness says, me first. My wants, my needs, my desires, the most important thing, and everything else takes a back seat to that. That is what selfishness is. Scripture calls us, though, Scripture calls us to an abandonment of self. Okay, in John chapter 3, verse 30, John the Baptist, recorded in another gospel, said, my mission, he must become greater. Jesus must become greater. I must become less. My entire life is about making him 
bigger, and myself less. Him more, less of me, less of me, less of me. I don't care if I get another uh, citation. I don't care if I get quoted. I don't care if I get credit for anything. It all goes to Jesus. I, he must become greater. I must become less. And that is what the Christian desires, is that Jesus is greater and we less and less and less. That's the Christian life. A lifetime of magnifying Christ, lifetime of reducing me. And if John the Baptist was in America today, he would find the exact same issue, except not with soldiers. We're not occupied. So I ask you, Cattles Christian Church, you live in America, who makes the most accusations against people? Who extorts money from people and corporations? Who uses the power of accusation to ruin others' lives or profession? You know who I'm talking about. The power of accusation, false accusation, is just as lucrative today as it was in Jesus' time. He would address cancel culture, I believe, and the, the political philosophy that uses accusation to shut people up, to destroy careers, to engage in lawsuits. These things are going on in our nation right now, and this is exactly what John the Baptist said not to do. It's very lucrative, like I said, to accuse people of an ism or a phobia. And this is what John the Baptist was calling out as evil and wrong and needing repentance of. If you are an accuser, a name caller, if you label people, if you, you don't like what they say, so you label them, you, you label them with, a, with an ism or a phobe. You know, if you are a person who tries to extort money or accuse people falsely to further your popularity or, or your agenda, I'm, t- I'm calling you to stop. And if you're the victim of someone who does that, if you are the victim of an accuser of cancel culture or anything like that, where someone tries to shut you up from being a Christian by calling you an ist or a phobe, fill in whatever prefix you want, the, best, the worst thing you can do is try to defend yourself. Try to argue, no, I'm not, no, I'm not. Don't, don't, that, that doesn't work because, because you're trying to prove your innocence. Well, there's no way you can do that. The best thing you can do, completely ignore it. Completely go on as if that statement was never said. Fail to acknowledge it. See, accusations are designed to move you into the defensive position and try to get you to prove what you can't prove. So don't even play that game. Don't even, don't, don't even acknowledge it. Don't even, just, just completely continue to do exactly what you're doing. Let them rain useless insults because the second you do not acknowledge it, they cease having the power. Okay? That's what I'm calling you guys to do. This is an election year, you all. I'm anticipating a rough, rough year culturally. You guys remember what 2020 was like, how awful that election year. I'm just basically, <laughs> I'm putting on the armor. I'm like, okay, man, I, I, what is 2024 an election year? It is going to be ugly politically. Here are some things that I want for us in the church. First of all, our citizenship is in heaven. We do not worry about, we don't, we don't, get, we don't get ruffled by the way things are down here. Second of all, do not let political division happen in this church. The, we are brothers and sisters in Christ, and we do not, we, the Bible tells us your struggle is not against flesh and blood. It is against the principalities of this dark realm, okay? So do not allow political differences to embitter you towards your Christian brother. And the third, we continue to stand for truth. In the election year, we will preach truth of the gospel. I don't care how, 
how, I don't care what it said. I don't care if it's called political. I, I, I don't care. We will continue to preach truth. And that's what you can expect for January, uh, for, for 2024, for this election year. We will, we, we will continue to win people to Christ. We'll continue to speak truth to a, to a lost culture, just like John the Baptist was here. All right? But, uh, but so we need to eliminate selfishness. And the last thing we need to do is we need to exhort our community. This is what John the Baptist, Luke 3, 15 through 20, the people were waiting expectantly, were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. So he was preaching such truth and, 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 and calling things out so well. They thought, hey, is this Jesus? Who, who, this guy's probably the Messiah. And John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod Herod added all these things, added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. Right? The word exhort means to call someone to something better. So if I'm caught in a sin, I would hope that somebody would exhort me saying, Dave, you're, you're falling, forward, uh, falling short of who you are. I want to exhort you. I want you to, I want, I want you to call, I want to call you back to who you know you are. That's what exhortation is. We need to call the church. We need to call Christians. We need to call our, our community back to something better. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what we're supposed to do. I, I laid the challenge down last week. I want 20 people to come to me and say, I am, I'm, I am committing to bring one person to the Lord this year. Uh, maybe somebody who's not in church, maybe somebody who's never been in church before, but, Lord, uh, but, but I'm going to commit to bringing them and discipling them and moving them into membership in this church. I need 20 people to do that, all right? Exhort your community, bring people back because that's what John the Baptist did. See, guys, if, if we are going to return to God, it's a five-step pro- process. First thing we need to do, we need to embrace relationship. Get rid of the ballpark faith. Know Jesus for yourself. The second thing is we need to, uh, <laughs> sorry, we need to enable generosity. We need to open our hearts to people around us. We need to eliminate dishonesty. Get rid of it, people. It's beneath you as a Christian. The fourth thing we need to do is extinguish selfishness. And then we need to constantly be in the, in the process of exhorting our community to come back to God. Because that is exactly the message of John the Baptist to a culture that has not changed one bit. God bless you. We'll see you next Sunday. Bye-bye.